Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two complimentary guests today. Jody Dean will reflect on the storming of the Capitol and the nature and extent of fascism in the U.S. And Quinn Slobodian will talk about the Querdenker, an odd collection of outside-the-box thinkers in Germany who don't like the state pushing them around in an effort to control the corona crisis. The attack of the U.S. Capitol was a stunning event, the latest in a series of stunning events. What's it all mean? Was it a coup? Is it a fascist movement with Trump as its fear? Here to meditate on these questions is Jody Dean. Jody Dean teaches political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Her latest book is Comrade, an essay on political belonging from Verso. Jody Dean. For the last four years, people have been obsessing over whether Trump is a fascist. And then for the last week or so, people have been obsessing over what we saw last week was a coup or an attempted coup. How important are these words? Do we really need to solve these problems? Do they add anything to our knowledge? Earlier in the Trump administration, in the Trump years, like the first two, three, even four years, when liberal Democrats were screaming about Trump as a fascist and authoritarian, I have to say, Doug, I didn't find that convincing. I thought of him more as clownish media people who appealed to folks' desire to punish um, a particular version of elites, and that to call him fascist was not recognizing the way that the democratic institutions that the U.S. has has been conducive to ruling class power, that there was some way that that to focus on Trump as a fascist really was not analytically clear, that um, that was just the wrong call. And at this point, though, I want to change how I think about this, or I am the events are changing how I think about it. It's not that I think Trump himself personally believes in fascist ideologies. I think Trump himself is only believes in his own ego and money, but that faced with um, the loss of the election, he mobilized the real fascist elements in American society. And those are real, right? I mean, we know that there have been these white supremacist militias, extremist groups operating in the U.S. for years and years. I mean, we saw them back actually in the Bush one administration. You remember they were worried about the New World Order. Um, And then in the Clinton administration, there was a really strong resurgence of these white far right militia groups. People were paying attention to them. It was but they were becoming more visible, stronger. And then the um, Oklahoma City bombing woke up. Um, the establishment and the establishment's law enforcement to try to crack back down on that. So it's not new in the U.S. to have these uh, fascistic elements. And I actually think we need to, that it's important to name the white supremacist as fascist because it lets us see that there's a kind of uh, specific U.S. version of fascism. It doesn't have to look exactly like Nazism. Like not all fascisms are identical. Italian fascism didn't look just like Um, German fascism, for example. What are those distinguishing features of this American fascism? The way I would distinguish it as it's race-based. And so like German fascism, there's a racial, a white Aryan racial formation. So with us, it's a white supremacist that's manifest in um, anti-black racism primarily, but other racisms, they, they hate a lot of people. Militarism, an embrace of violence. We need to make sure that we add in a kind of of aggrieved masculinity or um, aggrieved sense of patriarchy as part of it. And oh, and of course, very hardcore attachment to capitalism. And by hardcore attachment, I mean, they like the kind of Darwinian aspect. They want there to be losers. They enjoy the punishment. They think that helping another person is weak and wrong. And so 
extreme capitalism or Darwinian capitalism or hardcore attachment to capitalism, not because it's like an efficient economic mode of production, but because some people lose. If we put that kind of combo together, you know, cap, um, extreme capitalism, militarism, aggrieved masculinity and white supremacy, an embrace of violence, that, that gives us a pretty good encapsulation of the primary ideological features of these white supremacist groups. And so we can barely call them fascists. And what about the uh, evangelical Christianity? It would be cool if we had like a Venn diagram. There would be like overlap, but not a coincidence of those circles. We could say Ted Cruz is a you know, key reptilian player in that overlap. But, you know, there are other forms of evangelical Christianity that have tied themselves to you know, social programs and spreading peace and um, that kind of thing. So I, I think it's probably good to let their, you know, to recognize that there's not a total overlap. But those who have um, supported and driven the Republican Party, I put with the most overlapped. How do you see the social base of this? People are always talking about Trump's white working class support. I see it more as a petty bourgeois base. But what do you think? Oh, absolutely, Doug. I'm, I'm totally there with you. It, um, we've got to recognize it as the you know petty bourgeois, petite bourgeoisie. Who's going to leave their jobs in the middle of the day? Who has the money to fly across country? Who has is spending a whole lot of time on online rather than having to actually cobble together a lot of, of challenging jobs? Thinking about it as the aggrieved um, masculinity of the white petite bourgeoisie probably is pretty close. Now, there's no shortage of women in this movement either, although it is, does have a very masculinist cast to it. What draws them to it? Is it just uh, they buy into the same gender model? You know, there were fascist and uh, Nazi women who organized, um, were, were actually organized women's groups in the Third Reich. Women can be just as terrible <laughs> and, as men. To just say, why are they women would make us think like, oh, women would naturally be better. But that's that's garbage. They can be aggrieved for their men. They can like powerful men. And they can um, also enjoy the sense that they're fighting for something they believe in. And I, on that score, I want to segue a little bit on that. And this might, will probably be a terrible take and a real weakness of mine. But I felt like, wow, there are a lot of people out there who, um, you know, looking at the, the footage from the January 6th events, who are really protesting. Like, they really believe something. They're willing to go out there and fight. The U.S. stereotypes are couch potatoes and people just kind of consuming and politically apathetic. And yet, for the very worst causes, for really horrible, horrible reasons, these people were mobilized to go out. And I don't mean the people who stormed the the capital and Russian, but like the people at the demonstration, um, I think we they, they might be reachable people, right? I don't think every single one of those people is totally evil racist. I think they've been pushed by friends and neighbors and media to thinking things that are mistaken and that they feel like that things are wrong and that there should be ways to give them other narratives, other understandings, other facts to explain their, their sense of discontent and things being wrong in the world. I look at these people and I see this fulminating anger, and I don't fully understand what they're so angry about. Do you get that? It's probably got to be multiple things, right? The racist drive in the anger has got to be continued anger over the Obama administration. That is one of the things that gives them strength is just in the sense that they've lost control of their country, that that racist mobilization is so strong, which is why they had terrible, terrible reactions to the calls for justice for George Floyd over the summer. For some of these racist calls for justice for a black person means that their world is out of control. Some of it is really race-based. Some of them really do believe that the shutdowns of the summer took their liberties. For some groups, for some of the small groups, right, they were practicing insurrection already with the accosting of the different state capitals and the um, plan to kidnap the governor of Michigan. For some of them, that the, the aggrieved sense is a loss of, of freedom and the shutdowns were part of it and some of it's race and some of it is probably resentment of the billionaires and not understanding that their economic problems, their economic insecurity, their economic not being as 
as rich as the as the media is showing these billionaires or the influencers or the high achievers that that's not something to blame working class and poor people for that's something to blame the billionaires for and they don't get that and that in fact the left needs to do a better job redirecting popular anger well, and their vehicle, Trump, was a billionaire, or at least pretends to be one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, they don't see that as a problem. I think they really, for many of them, not, I mean, and that's actually one of the things, I, it, it's really easy to um, try to paint with a big brush to try to get a picture of this. But one of the things that I also found really interesting looking at pictures from uh, January 6th is seeing some people right with the zip ties and you know backpacks and really good armor and tote like masked and you can't tell who they are and they're really ready for a violent insurrection and other people are like any old generic person who's going out to it for a demo the first time like people showed up for different things and we might do better on the left politically if we if we divide them up and start to recognize that they are not all one group showing up for one reason. Uh, there's a paper, a uh, political science paper I saw a while back that uh, looked at the 2016 election and said, you know, contrary to the loose talk about Trump's base being the white working class, in fact, a very significant portion of it was nationally poor but locally rich. How do you think that figures into it? Are these small business owners in uh, the provinces who feel really crushed and left behind, uh, crushed by the forces of competition of the bourgeoisie, or uh, how does that fit in? We know that Trump does a lot of railing against high tech and Silicon Valley. Those kinds of billionaires who are really like so visibly rich and so determining of the things in our lives, right? Like with the cell phones and the laptops and every part of our lives being redirected through you know, computer networks. And like, like you can't, I couldn't go to the doctor without like filling all sorts of forms online, like that kind of stuff. Everything is moved online. And those people are getting very, very rich when a, a smaller businesses, like one, have to have an online presence, have to, you know, do their payroll and all this kind of stuff through the tech stuff. And yet can't get as far as say like their parents or grandparents, particularly if they're white people, as their parents or grandparents, they can't get that far as easily. And so I think they see these few companies are really able to live the American dream and make that money. And yet I work hard and I should be as rich as they are. Right? I should be getting this and they are hurting me. That's the way it's, it's got to be. It's got to be this sense that even though they have something their ability to expand or excel is really constrained by these other kinds of corporations, which I like. I don't think Trump would have railed against them only. He knows it plays with his base. I'm speaking with the political scientist Jody Dean. Playing with his base, I, mean, I recently read an essay of Trotsky's that was in the Yale Review of all places on uh, Hitler and the movement he encouraged. One of the points that Trotsky makes very nicely, is Hitler didn't really have much of an ideology. He just kind of just tested it out. He had a sense of grievances, but he didn't really have a very well-developed ideology, and he tested it out by um, giving speeches. And what people reacted to, that became incorporated into the Nazi program. It seems that Trump had a very similar approach. A lot of his, his uh, agenda was improvised on the, uh, on the speaking circuit. Wow, that, that parallel is fascinating. When you were mentioning it, it made me think of some comments, I think, from um, one of the Trump sons, I can't really tell them apart, um, either Eric or Don Jr. in the last couple of days, saying that the move of the big corporations, particularly the tech companies, to suspend campaign donations and to withdraw financial support, particularly from any of the members of Congress who failed to vote to validate the election results, this Trump kid was calling this um, the extension of cancel culture. And so it's been interesting the way they've mobilized the um, criticism of camp cancel culture and that it, um, so that they find that something that's going to that plays with their base to just keep calling something cancel culture automatically um, delegitimates it and redirects attention from the fact that well maybe the companies just didn't want to support um, an insurrection 
Well, it's just it was amazing to see the um, the high bourgeoisie come out in in, in favor of a process. <laughs> the National Association of Manufacturers, which historically has been quite to the right wing of the business lobby, the business roundtable, um, and we got the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So all the the classic elements that you know used to characterize '30s fascism, that unity of the military and then the big capitalists behind the fascist leader, uh, that didn't work this time around. Yeah, I keep wondering, are we going to see in the next 10 days this coming weekend, will it be the case that actual members of the military, like the soldiers, the the low ranked people, are they going to um, follow the orders that have come through? Or are they going to participate in uprisings? I guess I expect them to follow orders and not to be involved. And but but I don't know for sure. And that is that is something that makes gives us a current difference in between the mobilization of these militia groups that's different from the mobilization of the military. Um, on the other hand, recognizing the presence of fascists in the Capitol Police, probably in the Capitol itself, right, the, um, the heads of security there, in members of Congress, it starts to make the, the resemblance, I think, between um, Nazi Germany and the U.S. a little stronger, right? So it's not the strong, the, the really strong one, like you mentioned, Doug, where, where the industrialist and the military side with Hitler. But it's also not the case that the entirety of the bourgeoisie is rejecting him. That's going to be the interesting play over the next 10 days or week is to see how isolated does he become. And with these other members of Congress, let's say like like the lizard Ted Cruz, is he going to be completely delegitimated? Might he be censured? Might Schumer refuse to seat him? It's going to be really important for there to for it not to just be concentrated on Trump and the demonstrators, but to look all the way through the parts of, of government and the U.S. police apparatus that were actually part of or complicit in the events of January 6th. In Engels' famous phrase, uh, the special bodies of armed men, they may not have the military, but they've got a lot of the cops, which is quite yeah. scary. I mean, we could see it in the reactions to the Black Lives Matter protest over the summer, but even now with the, you know, the Capitol Police, that is frightening to have this very important uh, armed branch of government embracing authoritarian politics. I don't know if you've seen a couple of things that came out in the last 24 hours. One from Alexandra Arcasio-Cortez saying that she was quite afraid during that period of you know, where the mob were in the Capitol. But part of her fear was not knowing which Capitol police to trust and also which members of Congress. Because yeah, the members of Congress thing was really chilling. There are some who are completely complicit in, in this, uh, this attack. Oh yeah, and the, and then the um, the statements regarding like some members of Congress not being willing to go through the gun detector or not wanting to like not bear arms in the Capitol building like there was a violation of their rights like that's insane. Yeah, well, that uh, new congresswoman from Colorado who wants to carry her Glock down to the floor of the house, and I'm not really a, a gun control nut, but uh, the love that these people have with their guns uh, is just strange to me, alien and strange. One of the the interesting things to me about this event is it makes us have to really think about the specifics that matter. So you don't have to be a gun control nut to think that maybe after there's been an insurrection or a fascist attack on the Capitol, people should not be taking guns into it. Or maybe when there's a fascist attack on the Capitol, it should be the case that the social media of the president is shut down. I don't think that means that one is saying that Twitter should determine all free speech, or that we should look to the to corporations for the salvation of our um, so-called democracy, but that there's a response to a fascist attack on the Capitol that needs to be serious. Like, I don't know how you felt, but in the, the first couple of days afterwards, I was wondering, it seemed like a weird lull. How come nothing's happening? How come they let these protesters go? How, how, how come folks weren't like immediately arrested? I found the reaction of the bourgeoisie very strange. Um, it seems like it's taken it a while to take form. But now the FBI, though, is talking about uh, you know, hundreds of indictments and arrests. So um, it's really weird to find myself kind of rooting for the FBI in this case. But I really do want to see these people arrested and imprisoned. 
I am absolutely because if not, it means that the fascists realize that violence works and that will they will embolden them to another step. That seems like a pretty obvious thing. Now, there's some people on the left who seem to think that if we'd gotten the $2,000 checks out and had Medicare for all, none of this would happen. But a lot of these people just hate the idea of anything that resembles socialism and think that Joe Biden is a communist. So I don't know. What do you what do you think? Would you know some kind of ambitious social democratic agenda neutralize this threat or uh, are we beyond that point? That's a, a great question. And I actually don't think that we can answer that in any near term way. Right. I think that's going to take a few years at the very least to know. But one thing that stimulus checks or Medicare for all, or actually, you know, what if there was even a decent program to completely cancel rents and mortgages and cancel student loans and actually really make an effort to address the economic crisis? What that could do is take away some of the working class support or put a wedge between the petite bourgeoisie and the working class. So is it going to get the petite bourgeoisie members that we've been talking about already, the ones that are wealthy in their um, areas, but um, not kind of compared to the super rich coastal elites? Is it going to get them? Likely no. But will it will it separate them from um, people in the working class? My bet would be yes. Even the Republicans admit this, they realize this, that they can't win without the Electoral College and gerrymandering and uh, voter suppression. Despite the apparent success of the Republican Party um, in winning office, um, they really haven't uh, achieved a kind of hegemonic popular majority that you think they might. That's a hard one, I think. Um, it seems to me that right now... In the U.S., and by actually by right now, I've been, I, I've been thinking this for about 10 years, that the U.S. is in a civil war and that now we've seen the most visible eruption of it. We're in a condition where no party, no group has hegemony or in our um, the terms from our um, Slovenian friend, it's a condition of the decline of symbolic efficiency. There's not one symbolic order that everyone can agree on. And so that's why things like if we explain clearly the facts of the election, everyone will go home and that will be fine. That can't happen now because we've got a situation where people reject those basic facts. Same thing with coronavirus, right? There are people who don't believe it. And they get support from online sources or from some people who claim to be scientists or from people who claim to be you know, giving an objective analysis. There is not a symbolic order that brings us together. And that symbolic order is not going to be created or knit together or produced by impeachment. It's not going to be brought together and re-knit together by the prosecution of these fascists. It's going to be, which both things which need to happen, but it's going to take a long time if it's possible at all. I kind of feel that we need to, to grapple with that, right? We're in a situation where there is not a consensus on what reality is. Is it even possible to have a democratic society under those conditions? That's, I, I think, the choices, that, the, the, the situation that we face. Can there be a Trumpism without Trump? How important is his personality to uh, the generation of this movement? That's a great question. So we think about there's been um, these Proud Boys and I, I don't remember the names of all these right wing groups, all these you know, militia people for quite a while without Trump. And Trump gave them a sense of power and gave them more of a platform, let them see themselves in the um, represented in the leadership of the country. I don't see any political figure coming out in um, that has that capacity right now. I mean, Ted Cruz is just so utterly vile. Nobody likes that guy. Nobody likes that guy. He's just Trump is someone who you can hate him, but still recognize that he has a certain kind of charisma. You can find him gross, but you don't. It's not the kind of repulsion that you feel for Ted Cruz. Like, I can't I got to turn off the screen, turn away like I cannot. He's just utterly vile. There's not someone who occupies the Trump place. And so that's going to make that um, formation, it's going to make it dissipate. It's going to weaken it. The question is, how much will their sense of aggrievement and possibility let them uh, mobilize 
without him. And my best guess is that they will dwindle because they don't have a center force, but they'll still be out there. And then the question will be, you know, what's the next thing that's going to pull them together? That was Jody Dean. Jody Dean teaches political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Here's a bit of that Trotsky passage I mentioned. At the start of his political career, Hitler did not bring into the movement any ready-made program. He began with grievances and complaints. True, he knew not how to cure the evil. Sentimental formlessness, absence of disciplined thought, ignorance along with gaudy erudition, all these minuses turned into pluses. They supplied him with the possibility of uniting all types of dissatisfaction around the beggar's sack of National Socialism. In the mind of the agitator was preserved from among his early personal improvisations whatever had met with approbation. His political thoughts were the fruits of oratorical acoustics. That is how the selection of slogans went on. That is how the program was consolidated. That is how the leader took shape out of the raw material. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the second movement of Beethoven's early string trio number three performed by the Grumio trio. It's not his 250th birthday year anymore, but he lives on. Now some cross-Atlantic affinities in the rebellion against public health directives, this focusing on Germany. My next guest, Quinn Slobodian, is an associate professor of history at Wellesley College. He's the author of Globalists, an Intellectual and Political History of Neoliberalism, published by Harvard University Press. He's here now to discuss an article he co-wrote with William Callison for the Boston Review, Corona Politics from the Reichstag to the Capitol. It looks at Querdenken, a German compound that translates as diagonal thinking, an odd movement of small business people, hippies, organic food enthusiasts, and others that has arisen in opposition to mask mandates and lockdown orders designed to fight the pandemic. They have a lot in common with our anti-maskers, and here's Quinn Slobodian to explain. Querdenken, uh, the German word quer... What's this all mean, linguistically speaking? Quer means across or transverse or diagonal. And in the German context, Querdenken has become a kind of a piece of corporate jargon, something like thinking different or thinking outside of the box. In the context of the movements and protests against the lockdown and coronavirus measures, it's become a way of arguing against the common sense and the authorities of scientific knowledge coming down from central sources. Reading the, your article, I was reminded of what they used to say about the Greens, or the Greens used to say about themselves 20, 30 years ago, neither left nor right, but out in front. Um, this seems to have some something in common with that kind of thinking. Yeah, I mean, it does definitely draw from the similar, I think, historical sources as something like the Green Party came from. This curious coalition that you see of people opposing lockdown measures and masks and the vaccines in extreme cases really resembles the kind of new social movements that came out of the 68 mobilization and sort of blossomed in the 1970s. This kind of shocks a recognition for someone like myself who's studied that history to see the same sort of bewilderment on the part of official commentators who just say, what do all these people have in common except for the fact that they hate the state and that they hate authority, right? So these categories of anti-authoritarianism, extra-parliamentary opposition that were also kind of catch-all, almost categories of despair on the part of social scientists in the 1970s are also good descriptors, I think, of what we're seeing on the streets. The difference, of course, with something like the Green Party is the Green Party is an example of that energy coalescing into a pretty recognizable parliamentary form. The nature of the protest now is so diffuse and seems to be... Um, making a kind of a gesture of refusal against that parliamentary politics. 
it's in the same space, I think, that a lot of this stuff was in the 70s and 80s when commentators in places like Germany didn't know which direction it was going to flow in. Would it be leading towards social disintegration, loss of legitimacy for the government, or would it be happily absorbed into a rebooted lifestyle capitalism, which is more or less what happened in the 90s and 2000s in Germany? I think a lot of Americans just relying on the cliches about the German character would think be surprised that there are anti-mask, anti-lockdown politics in Germany. One would think of the Germans as people who follow orders, you know, are very cautious. What is driving this uh, anti-mask, anti-lockdown protest? And, and who are the characters? It's quite a, um, a diverse coalition of characters that uh, make up this movement. Well, one of the things that we were really able to profit from in writing our piece was the first kind of proper academic study that's been performed now by the sociologist Oliver Nachtwey at the University of Basel and a team there. So they did a sort of a proper, rigorous interview and survey process to kind of get get a measure of what the profile was of the people who were in the streets. And what they found was pretty interesting. I mean, they found that the largest political affiliation of anyone out there was, was indeed um, with the Green Party, followed then by the Linke Party, the left party, and only then by the AFD or the far, the far right alternative for Germany party. So that connection to the new social movements is is there, and it's it's very strong for people who know Germany. They know that this sort of this figure of the old 68er is sort of a, a fixture of of urban scenes. So you have in the in the Kverdenken protests a curious alliance, I think, between people who for decades have been uncomfortable with following orders in one way or the other, and who are more urban and maybe even cosmopolitan, but questioning of media concentration, questioning of elite power. And that block has sort of found partners with a more sort of disaffected lower socioeconomic class that uh, has indeed been put out by the last couple of decades of transformations of German capitalism have led to much more precarity, uh, much less job security, much more dissatisfaction with the inadequacy of the social the social protection that the German state once offered and, and increasingly does much less of. There's a kind of old hippie block matched with the, the younger discontent of people often from the former East. And a lot of this is crystallizing on the internet, obviously, through shared access to Facebook groups, Telegram groups, and the like, which put people together in a in sort of a shared disdain for Dida Olden or those above. So that anti-authoritarian streak is is a strong part of post-war German culture as well. I think that if anything, the Germans sort of pride themselves on a spirit of, of questioning and, and critique and discussion and much less so than perhaps even some cultures in, in the Nordic uh, space or Netherlands. There's, there's sort of also an attempt to break free from that cliche of Protestant rule abiding. Yeah, because it's easy to trace the American anti-maskers uh, to, you know, that kind of don't tread on me libertarian individualism, which has deep roots in American politics. But there are analogous things in German history, or is this uh, a post-war phenomenon? It is kind of a post-60s phenomenon. And this is something that I've also seen in Western Canada, for example, where I've been um, in sort of corona seclusion for the last several months, and you pick up a sort of the local hippie, hippie newspaper or magazine that would have previously been talking about stopping clear-cutting and questioning the, the WTO or U.S. foreign policy. And front to back, it's about COVID now, or COVID-1984, as it calls it, questioning the authority of doctors, questioning the authority of the state, questioning the boundaries of tech censorship. So this spirit of questioning power and seeing a sutured together block of elite opinion that is aligned against the interests of average citizens, that is a legacy of the 60s and 70s moment in Germany, in the West, and a legacy of the post-East Germany moment in the East. One can really see that in um, the protest signs one sees on the street that are constantly making reference to East Germany, saying this is the moment of 1989 for Merkel. Wir sind das Volk, or we are the people. So there's this post-state socialist story, as well as a kind of post-68 story. There have been such moments before. One that always brings it home for me is in the 1980s, there was an attempt to do a census in Germany. This was the first time in West Germany, the first time there'd been a census in, since the 50s. And there was such a massive grassroots opposition to performing a census that they actually had to cancel it. For all of these reasons, concerns about the infiltration of the private sphere through the authorities, um, fear of technology, 
the battle against left-wing terrorism in the 1970s left a big scar on the psyche of a lot of people on the left in Germany that is still there, the fear that surveillance and computers are being used to root out those who think differently. Things that are all really live on the demand side, reasons to feel skepticism or resentment. But what's interesting is the people who are trying to kind of gather that resentment and aim it in certain directions are often in it, I think, for very different reasons, right? They're often not coming from long histories of social movement activism or post-60s consciousness or whatever. They're often much more pecuniary hustlers that see a kind of market niche in all of this and are trying to figure out how to quite literally pad their bank accounts with the skepticism that's circulating in the population. I want to get back to the hustler angle because that's important. But uh, at the beginning of the piece, you say this is not Ortega y Gosset's uh, revolt of the masses, it's a revolt of the Mittelstand, uh, the, the small and mid-sized business that uh, was once the bedrock of German industrial power. Expand on that, please. Uh, what is the Mittelstand uh, up in arms about? Well, the, yeah, the Mittelstand is kind of this funky German concept, but does refer to kind of the small and medium-sized and often family-owned businesses that make up the majority of companies in, in Germany and are often seen as sort of the secret to German economic success. What we were trying to get at with that is that the measures taken by the authorities to keep the pandemic under control have often been experienced specifically by small and medium-sized business owners as especially existentially harmful for their the health of their, their business and their livelihoods, partially because they just aren't operating necessarily at the kind of size that they can absorb the losses associated with the kind of cash burn that larger companies can. They, in many cases in Germany and elsewhere, can't access the kind of public and private lines of credit that would otherwise be able to keep them going. And they're not, of course, of the state. And those employees and, and people who work within the state are able to subsist on support through this periods of, of lockdown and disruption. So there's kind of good structural reasons, I think, for people who are small and medium business size owners to feel like they're the ones being most put out and most endangered economically. That then produces an opening for people who are otherwise self-employed or working as freelancers, working within what you would call the precariat, which is, as I mentioned, ever larger in Germany in the last 15, 20 years. So this is kind of a different vision, I think, of, of who might be driving resentment than the usual idea of 2016, 2017, which is people who have been left either un or underemployed through the structural transformations of capitalism in the last 20 years. These are people who specifically because of the nature of lockdown measures are especially being put out. And the surveys show that the Mittelstand in Germany is especially dissatisfied with the way that the state has been managing the coronavirus. So there's a kind of an old story, which I think is still is still an accurate one about the, the petty bourgeoisie being a, a demographic that's especially prone to questioning uh, measures that take into um, consideration the kind of the well-being of the whole, if it seems like it infringes on their own personal wealth or liberty in any way. And that's active in Germany as it is in the U.S. Yeah, we're certainly seeing a lot of that in the Trump phenomenon. Yeah, well, that's where we saw so many of the resonances between the two kind of stormings, right? The storming of the Reichstag in August, much less successful. And then, of course, the successful storming of the Capitol in, in January. In both cases, as people have pointed out, you know, who can take the day off in the middle of the week to go and storm the government building? Well, it's often people who have their own businesses are there, you know, are self-employed themselves. And that much has, you know, seemed to hold so far, at least anecdotally, in the U.S. case with the large numbers of people arrested who were behavioral tech entrepreneurs and uh, pool service business owners. And in the numbers that we have from the Querdenken protests, we can see that indeed self-employed people are way overrepresented. There does seem, seem to be something to that small and medium business owner anger and anxiety as a, a real fuel for a lot of this. I'm speaking with the historian Quinn Slobodian. A guest in this show a few weeks ago, Rodrigo Nunes, uh, made the point that failed businessmen were a really important part of uh, Bolsonaro's base in Brazil. So it seems that these uh, small business people in trouble are really um, causing a lot of trouble in um, multiple countries. Right. Well, this is one of the things that I think has really become a theme on you know, what you could call the right and the far left, which is this dissociation between corporations and markets. One thing we really noticed in our, our research into the Querdenken 
phenomenon is there's, and this goes also for people like Tucker Carlson, right? Is there's this condemnation of corporations as somehow in cahoots with the state um, prone to roll out some great reset that will further infringe on the liberties of the small and medium business owners. So there's a way that corporations have become distinguished from small businesses. That distinction is often circulated, but it's become much more of a bright line now in the way that the rhetoric is being set up and the idea of the small businessman as the person who is now set to be expropriated by this coalition of people from the World Economic Forum to Joe Biden is a variation on the kind of anti-elite discourse that we've seen in the past. I would say aimed more at parties of the left and, and academic elites and cultural elites. Now, it seems like corporate elites the Jamie Dimons and the, the Jack Dorseys and the, and the Zuckerbergs of the, of the world are really entering the center of the target. And that's a place where there is, I think, an openness for, for kind of sympathy between the mainstream right rhetoric and the further left um, anti-corporate rhetoric. Well, it's funny, these folks idealize the market as an abstraction, but a large feature of the market is competition. And I thought this true about American populists in the 19th century, too. They're just not competitive. The larger corporations are much more efficient, more innovative, and the little guys really can't compete against them. So this market that they allegedly love, and the competition that they supposedly embrace, is what's destroying them. Yeah, well, there's a kind of a curious thing where the, there's almost a claim for the right to compete, which means somehow that you have a, some sort of a, a, a social right to be able to participate in the marketplace, whereas obviously the, the brutal fact of competition is that it can sometimes eliminate you altogether from the marketplace. Because the, the findings from the surveys about the Querdenken protesters was, was actually not a great deal of dissatisfaction with the way that the state was responding. But I think there is an ingrained belief in in the virtuous nature of competition, not only among ideas, but also among enterprises. And perhaps I think the, the strongest point of angst for them is their reliance on tech platforms, right? Because there's this very troubling paradox for them where their language of the need for, a com for competition and openness is all you know funneling directly through the most concentrated sites of global capitalism currently in the world, right? Which is the world of tech. This is uh, a site of angst that is in flux as we speak, as the very people that we write about in the article are being deplatformed one after the other, as their own platforms that they've adopted, Parler, in particular, effectively becomes taken offline. This knot is being unraveled in the sense that. You know, they no longer have to worry about being dependent on particularly concentrated platforms because now they are no longer allowed to be there. And I, I'm very curious about which of that kind of range of, of platforms that we name in the article will rise out of this moment as the new site of concentration. It's hard to avoid Amazon Web Services, though, it seems. Right, exactly. I think it's a sort of an itch that they are unable to scratch, which is that that they have this this ethos, as we say in the in the piece of trust no one but markets, especially corporations, in the sense that they have this sort of cyber libertarian horizontalist ethos somehow, but as opposed to the kind of five-star movement digital parties of about 10 years ago, who didn't really seem to get wound up too much about the ownership of the tech platforms that they were using. Um, there's a great deal of angst about that ownership now as, you know, Silicon Valley has gone from being a kind of a benign presence to a loathed presence kind of from right to left. Now, if you have a, a bunch of people who are hungry for denialist conspiracy theories, there is, of course, a core of hustlers that's going to develop uh, and distribute them for them, right? There's quite a, an array of uh, merchants of denial in Germany as well in the US. Absolutely. I mean, the, the ones we tried to home in on, we tried to pick some sort of ideal types. And one was the kind of media hustler. So the person who's responsible for this main movement, Kverdenk, in, in the sense that he's copyrighted the logo and branded it, was literally a media consultant working for major corporations until 10 months ago um, and had no sign of political engagement. And now, as has been revealed by journalists in Germany, is doing things like, you know, setting up open PayPal links to his own account. He's managed to describe Kverdenken in such a way that it doesn't fall under the same kind of tax categories as an actual political party or a movement would. So in that case, it's just outright personal self-enrichment. In other cases, someone we name there is the sort of the left to right thinker. 
And there are examples in, in Germany and elsewhere of people who have, you know, done this kind of red brown thing in German, you call it a querfront in which the left goes from being your allies to the left being seen as traitors who are aligning with liberal centrists and therefore must be condemned. And if to do so, you have to side with the far right, then so be it. I think we're familiar with this dynamic in the United States as well. Those kind of actors are able to show some depth or legitimacy to the, the activism in the sense that they can draw back on a kind of a rhetoric and a jargon of social movements that is recognizable to people who are themselves politicized in that way. So that's another figure. And then third, we have the probably the, in a way, the most representative one, which is the kind of esoteric member of the far right who manages to combine ideas of holism with skepticism about corporate power and, and elite power and threads it all through with a kind of a vision of an interconnected world order that is secretly governed by, you know, a very small and tight secret cabal of um, thread pullers or drahtzieher, as, as you would say in German. And this is a milieu and a market, you could say, that has been um, worked on for some time. It's not a coincidence that in Germany, for example, one of the main publishing houses for this kind of stuff is called Finanzbuchverlag, finance book press. And if you look at what they publish, it's totally wild. Some stuff about sort of alien conspiracies, some stuff about the coming collapse of the monetary system, and then the new book by Tilo Zavatsin, the most well-known um, nativist opponent of immigration. There's a very agile and, and indeed sort of nimble and entrepreneurial kind of search for niches that's happening in the online space, and it's serving to kind of catalyze and accelerate these energies that in directions that I think are certainly far more destructive than they might otherwise be. There's no reason why an old 68er needs to find themselves at a demonstration next to a member of the far right, except for the fact that some movement hustler, some entrepreneurial kind of platform actor has managed to orchestrate the situation. I think that people are being melded together in, in certain corrosive ways because of the kind of self-enrichment and uh, strategies of these online uh, figures. Yeah, a lot of this sounds like Alex Jones. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, Prison Planet and all that. It does have its roots in the United States as, as well, certainly. One thing that we really were motivated by in writing the piece was was just feeling worried or noticing in certain ways that a lot of people were just dusting off their kind of 2017 takes to make sense of all of this. So it was like, oh, here we go again. Populists are, are storming the Capitol. And it was the populist take was on satisfactory four years ago, and it's certainly unsatisfactory now. If you want to put a different spin on this that we actually didn't do in the article, we need to see a lot of this as a kind of a next phase following the kind of the high point of a statist progressivism that we saw with the Corbyn project and the the Sanders campaign. The petering out of that in, in early 2020 created a space then later, of course, for a much more substantial in ways uh, on the streets mobilization with Black Lives Matter, which was of a very different nature. I think that the defund the police movement was about anti-statism rather than statism in many ways. This, what we're calling diagonal movement, is a kind of, it's part of a, a genre that is emerging, I think, that is not just skeptical of one side of the political spectrum, but is sort of skeptical of elite power per se and statism per se. And what that sort of inchoate energy is going to do is, I think, not determined in advance, right? I don't think it's all aiming towards this party or this candidate. Anyone who watched the bizarre spectacle of the occupation of the Capitol building on 6th of January would realize how without skeleton this thing is. I mean, it is very much an inchoate blob of energy. That, yeah, that was my nice more... question. Where does this go? I mean, does this recede with the pandemic, assuming that ever happens? Um, but, you know, when I hear this sort of neither left nor right business, I always, it's probably my old Marxist dinosaur speaking, but I always assume that breaks right. Um, so but where do you see this going? Some of it reminds me of the early Nazi era, too. The, um, so, yeah, how do you see this developing? Well, the way that we sort of break it down at the end of the piece is we see three possible routes forward. One would be that the discontent gets scooped up by existing far-right parties. The majority of people who questioned in the German survey said that 
that they had voted green and left, but the majority by far said that they would vote AFD or Alternative for Germany in the coming in the next election because the AFD is the only party that has again sort of shrewdly, after some hesitation, taken the side of anti-lockdown, anti-masking, sort of corona skepticism. There's a way that far-right parties might just scoop some of, a lot of these people up. Another option is that that it spawns a kind of startup party, as it's called, or a digital party. There's been attempts by this to create these online manifestations of parties, which which they hope would snowball into being real contenders, as indeed happened with Five Star, as happened with the Brexit Party, as happened with the AFD originally. So that is a possible route forward. What that would take is unclear, but I think, and I think also the baseline skepticism of parliamentary politics that's driving a lot of this would be make that unlikely. But the third one, I think, is perhaps the most dangerous one, even the mo- even though it's has the least visible short-term payoff, which is that what we're seeing is a kind of a preview of the inability of people to accept top-down projects of scientifically informed mass action, right? I mean, there's a way that the lockdown, as many people have observed, previews some of the ways that that responses to climate crisis might have to be performed in a very serious way. And the fact that there's been such deep skepticism, even from the kind of populations that you would think would be most accepting of scientifically informed collective action, for example, old hippies, I think makes makes me feel like this is only the first step of a much more broadly based climate skepticism uh, movement that would arise should the incoming party of the Democrats actually try to do something about that. That's my fear, is this the inchoate, anti-elite, anti-state, anti-science nature of it is actually just a preview of the the real difficulty from left to right of performing the very actions of um, state remediation that the climate crisis requires. I was Quinn Slobodian, an associate professor of history at Wellesley College. I was struck how both Jody Dean and Quinn Slobodian pointed to small business resentment of the big tech platforms as a stimulus to the political mobilization. Those platforms seem to be occupying a role similar to that played by the railroads in the eyes of the farmers who constituted the populist movement of the late 19th century. Though they were the means of getting their produce to wider markets, they exercised an enraging degree of economic power over them. That's it for me, Doug Hemwood. Let's go out with this, some of the teaser early release of a track from a tribute album to the Gang of Four, forthcoming in May. This is Naturals Not In It, featuring Tom Morello and Serge Tankian. Till next week, bye.